the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022, the 489th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started, as always, I must remind you about the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code REASONABLE. And you can receive up to 60% off items all across the store. They're also doing a bunch of buy one, get one free sales. And when you purchase, they will send you a free gift of Mike Lindell's autobiography. So if you want to make your feet or your bed or just your whole home way more comfortable, go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code reasonable, grab everything you need. You'll be supporting this podcast. You'll be supporting the great patriot Mike Lindell and his great company, MyPillow. I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who found the podcast yesterday on Substack and then subscribed for a paid membership on Substack. Thank you sincerely. That is the best and one of the only ways I can actually support my continued ability to produce this work. So if you value the work, Please sign up for a membership over there. $5 a month breaks down to like a quarter an episode. And I know that people are strapped for cash, so please don't feel like you have to. But if you are able, if you do appreciate the work and want me to be able to continue to do it, anything you can do along those lines will really help. I think probably at some point in June, I might move the show strictly to that model of Substack subscribers. They'll get the episode that day and maybe I'll put the episode out for free a day or so later. But the honest truth is that I've devoted virtually all my time to this project for the last two years and tried to ask really nothing in return because I'm happy to do my part. But there's an extended duration where you can carry on doing that throughout your life. And I'm reaching that point. So if everyone who listens to the show jumped on board and was able to support at that level, I would be able to keep doing all of this and have it be sustaining for at least the next few months. My honest belief has always been there will come a moment where this stuff flips over and then 
the whole path will open up in front of me and people like me who are currently being suppressed by the social media platforms, banned by the podcast distribution networks, etc. Not complaining about it. That's the world we live in. But I also live in the world where I have to eat and put a roof over my head. So let's get into it. I want to expand a bit on the conversation that I was having in the first half of yesterday's show about the World Economic Forum and the globalists. And what I was laying out was the grand globalist enterprise that we are continually told is nothing more than a conspiracy theory. Now, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum himself wrote a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset. And in that book, Klaus Schwab describes how the COVID-19 pandemic and the world's very proper response to the COVID-19 pandemic would allow us to fix all of the other problems with humanity as defined by the global communists. It would detach people from everything that they understand to be normal life, and it would bring them into a new normal that they wouldn't refuse. They would actually really like because it was better than the torture and suffering that they were currently enduring. And of course, this is the promise of every communist regime. It is always for the workers. It is always for the least of us. It is for the marginalized and the most vulnerable. It's for those valiant souls for whom, no matter how much work they perform, they just can't quite seem to get ahead or even keep up. So what we need to do is take over their lives completely because they are useless, according to Yuval Noah Harari. But we're not going to just kill them. People would eventually figure out maybe a couple years later that that sort of thing is wrong. So what they need to do is get all of those people to do exactly what they want them to do, but to do it willingly, as if it was of their own volition. Yes, we destroyed your job and your career and you lost your house and your family has no health insurance and it's getting really hard to put food on the table. But look at this tiny apartment we have for you. Just make sure everyone is fully up to date on their vaccine schedules. We're going to need all of your biometrics. We're going to need you on a vaccine passport, but it's just going to ease your way into all sorts of businesses in the future. Right now, it's just for vaccines, but in the future, it's going to be how you navigate your life. And sure, it might turn out that there are places you just simply can't go, but hey, this is the new normal, and that grocery store is for other sorts of people. He writes things like this. It is, of course, much too early to tell with any reasonable accuracy what COVID-19 will entail in terms of momentous changes. But the objective of this book is to offer some coherent and conceptually sound guidelines about what might lie ahead. And to do so in the most comprehensive manner possible. Our aim is to help readers grasp the multifaceted dimension of the changes that are coming. 
At the very least, as we will argue, the pandemic will accelerate systemic changes that were already apparent prior to the crisis. The partial retreat from globalization, the growing decoupling between the U.S. and China, the acceleration of automation, concerns about heightened surveillance, the growing appeal of well-being policies, rising nationalism and the subsequent fear of immigration, the growing power of tech, the necessity for firms to have an even stronger online presence, among others. But it could go beyond a mere acceleration by altering things that previously seemed unchangeable. It might thus provoke changes that would have seemed inconceivable before the pandemic struck, such as new forms of monetary policy, like helicopter money, already a given. The reconsideration and recalibration of some of our social priorities and an augmented search for the common good as a policy objective. The notion of fairness acquiring political potency, radical welfare and taxation measures, and drastic geopolitical realignments. The broader point is this. The possibilities for change and the resulting new order are now unlimited and only bound by our imagination, for better or for worse. Societies could be poised to become either more egalitarian or more authoritarian or geared toward more solidarity or more individualism, favoring the interests of the few or the many. Economies, when they recover, could take the path of more inclusivity and be more attuned to the needs of our global commons, or they could return to functioning as they did before. You get the point. We should take advantage of this unprecedented opportunity to reimagine our world in a bid to make it a better and more resilient one as it emerges on the other side of this crisis. So the new normal is going to be about a search for the global common good to the benefit of the many, not the few, except for the few who are going to decide what is good for the many. And those people are all meeting in Davos right now. And so here's how I framed it yesterday. Obviously, the world is extraordinarily chaotic right now. Probably the most chaotic period we have seen in our lives, unless we're 75 or older. And we are told by our betters, we are told by the news that all of these problems are the result of random circumstance and situations beyond our control, except that the things that we we can control, the things that we can impact, well, those problems are all caused by Donald Trump, Trumpism, Trump supporters, and disinformation. And somehow that small collection of forces and people seized enough power to completely destroy societies and cause all of this chaos, all of these crises that we are experiencing right now. And they don't explain exactly how that happened because it is pretty widely known that our side of things, the people who care about national sovereignty and individual sovereignty and things like the constitution and human freedom and morality. We're not in control of all the stuff. Okay. The government completely controlled by the uniparty through stolen elections 
in nearly all cases, and they exist only to implement the global communist agenda. The corporations, especially the large transnational corporations, and especially the partners of the World Economic Forum, those corporations, we don't control those. The universities, nope. The media, no. Big tech, no. The medical community, no. The international organizations, no. Do we control the entertainment industry? Nope. Professional sports, no. School curriculums, no. Did we encourage lockdowns? No. Masks, no. Vaccines, no. None of us have ever suggested that anything be mandated. So what could the source of all this chaos be? How could it possibly be Trump or Trumpism or Trump supporters or disinformation or people that care about individual sovereignty? How did we take control of the system to the point where everything would be ruined, even though we were left without the power to change anything? And yeah, Donald Trump was in office for four years, but he had the Democrat Communist Party trying to thwart him at every turn. He had rhino Republicans trying to thwart him at, at every turn. All of those institutions of power were lined up against Donald Trump, and so were the global governing bodies. There was also a soft coup going on the entire time Trump was in office, and then they were planning to steal an election, which they believe that they actually accomplished, but, you know, it turned out that they didn't. And you can complain all you want that that job is not finished yet. The job is obviously not finished, but it is going in the proper direction and it goes that way faster every single day. So does Donald Trump, Trumpism, Trump supporters and disinformation, does that explanation have any explanatory power? Does that tell us how the world got to this chaotic state? No, it doesn't. On the other hand, we can look to these global governing bodies, these global organizations, and all these institutions of power that I and many others have referred to over the years as the old guard. All of these institutions that are lined up directly against Donald Trump, Trumpism, the quest for national and individual sovereignty. The powerful forces in the world are lined up totally against that. Those powerful forces do all sorts of studies. They have tabletop exercises. They have war games. They have meetings that they broadcast to the world where they relay their plans about what the world is going to become. They are building the future for everyone. And of course, while they're doing that, they must reinterpret and rewrite the present and the past in order to facilitate an easier transition to that future. And included in all those plans are essentially the step-by-step -step instructions for what we can see playing out in the real world as they try to implement their agenda. And we can see that the result of that agenda is utter chaos. We can also understand from their own writings that the chaos is the point. The chaos is what allows them to dissolve and disintegrate society, to atomize people, to keep them away from one another so that they can't look each other in the eye and say, wow, 
everything's kind of going to shit, huh? Who do you think's responsible for that? They don't want that. They want you to look at your phone, see your Apple news feed, read their little headlines about how the globalists are doing everything perfectly. If not for Trump and Trumpism and disinformation and QAnons, and then they just want you to repeat their slogans to everyone else. These global organizations brag about how well connected they are between different world governments, all of the NGOs, the philanthropy community, and of course, all their corporate partners. They consider it an achievement that they are able to get all of these institutions and organizations on the same page so that they will all play their small part in pursuing the same goals. And those goals, those agenda items, we can see the effect they have in the world. And that effect is chaos. Now, for them, all that chaos comes with the promise that they are creating a better and brighter tomorrow for all of us. The most powerful people in the world are going to create a utopia it's just ahead and they would get there faster, except people like me and people like you are out there trying to convince everybody that their plans are actually really, really bad and not just bad in an incompetent way like we can see in the world, not that they just lead to horrible conclusions that were easily predictable before the agenda items were implemented. It's not just that. It's that the plans are also overtly evil. So we know the plans. We know the results. We know that they coordinate on all of this. We know that each individual organization and entity's promise to the global community is to play their part in implementing the agenda. And they actually brag about their results. They call everything that's happening now progress. This is moving them into the world they want. One where they can have all the coastlines, all the mountainous areas, and all the plains, all the farmland, all that. They'll buy that up, but they'll have the workers do all the work there. They'll have robotics do the work there. And the people will live there in little company towns, just like every communist society always progresses toward. You can look at the tech factories in China, like the Foxconn thing. They have dormitories. The people live at work. They go to work in the morning. They return to their little rooms at night. And that's why those buildings have suicide nets, because people try to jump out the windows to kill themselves, to get away from their life of enduring a never ending communist hellscape. That's where we're headed. They take all of the best land, the land that they like to enjoy, a little ocean, a little skiing during the winter. Can't have regular people there. That's oligarch territory. And if it's not oligarch territory yet, well, just throw a few film festivals and we'll get there in time. So, you know, the global entities you know all of their partners throughout the world. They are all very proud of these things. They list them for you. All you have to do is visit their websites. You can see them. 
You know that the agenda is coordinated. You know that the agenda is being implemented. You can see the results of that agenda in your real life. And the same people implementing the agenda are also bragging about the results and telling you how important it is that those agenda items remain implemented and in fact are further supported. But despite all of that, we are told it is all a conspiracy theory from the tinfoil hat people, from the QAnons. They find their little dark corners of the internet where they get to say whatever they want without any gatekeepers, without any content moderation. And they spread misinformation to the most mentally vulnerable people, which they, of course, define as anyone who's not brainwashed by the central narrative and believing only things that are provably false. But it's not them, we're told. It's us. We are causing the problems, not them. They are there to fix the problems on their terms. And of course, that's why they created the problems in the first place. If they were good faith actors, they would look at the chaos in the world right now and say, man, someone's got to put a stop to that. It seems that all these things we've tried, well, they haven't really worked out as we planned. Things aren't going that well. Maybe we should shift focus. Maybe our agenda was misguided. Maybe we should have stopped at some point from breeding more gender studies majors. Maybe the real world doesn't quite operate the way the gender studies majors say. Maybe that explains all of our problems in the real world that don't exist in our theoretical world. So we see these global organizations operating, and every time they announce something new, we consume that information as if the thing they're doing is already happening, or it will definitely happen down the line because these people have so much power. That's what they tell us. They have all of the institutions of power. Therefore, they can totally control our lives. Every time they announce something new, like they're going to sign a treaty and all of the world's governments will then be responsive to the WHO and immediately implement WHO policies whenever the WHO decides there's a pandemic. All of a sudden, our entire country would be locked down. But if we step back from the narrative that we are given by the news, and I understand that that's not that easy to do, but really think about it, right? Strip away everything you know about what the mainstream media tells you, and then try to rebuild a belief without that. Just going to source information, observing what's happening in the world, actually analyzing the things the news is saying without taking them as a fact or even a potential fact necessarily, giving it only the weight it deserves, understanding that the truth you are told by the news, the only truth you are told is what they want you to believe. And what they want you to believe is decided by these same people in the globalist organizations. You got to strip that all away and try to build truth up from nothing based on only things that you can observe and know and prove. 
like really back up, right? You're not going to get everything right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you are trying to prove or disprove the case that the vaccines are very safe and effective, what the news said is not part of that calculation. The news saying that vaccines are very safe and effective is not in any way proof that the vaccines are very safe and effective. You have to understand that the central narrative is messing with time. They are at all times confusing you about what's happening in the present moment. They are reinterpreting the past so that the things that you knew and relied on are now discovered to have all been wrong. And they are presetting a narrative about events in the future because their plans only work with the compliance of the people. And for the people to comply, the people have to believe them. And of course, black pillars and doomers and otherwise ignorant people will say that's not true. They have enough power at their disposal that they could easily oppress all the people worldwide and force us into either compliance or concentration camps or death. And that is the worst possible vision of what the global communist state would bring. I'm not denying that that situation would be possible if these people have as much power as you believe they have. And if they were, in fact, willing to use that power and wage campaigns of state violence against the people to force them into compliance. But they have not done it yet. And there's a good reason for that. They don't have the power. They want to make people comply out of their own volition, or at least they want people to believe that they are complying of their own volition. But if that was the case, then what is the point of the rest of it? They would have just gone immediately for that. What they need is to be able to have the society be stable afterward and for the people to trust that their hand on the switch is the hand people should want on the switch. Klaus Schwab's most recent book is called The Great Narrative. They need the narrative to work and the narrative beyond all of their other plans. Their narrative agenda is failing worse than all of their other agendas. Every agenda they have is failing spectacularly, but none of them more spectacularly than their narrative agenda. And you can tell it's failing because they need the censorship and they need the propaganda. So we know the agenda. We know who has the power to implement the agenda. We know that the people in power implementing the agenda are committed to working together each doing their part to implement the agenda. We know the results of the agenda, and we know that they brag about the results of the agenda as progress toward what's best for everyone. And still, still, if you are the sort of person with a smooth and soft brain, the kind that would lead you to think that you should vote for Joe Biden, the guy that was mentored by a Klansman for decades in his political career to solve racism, then you might still say, well, okay, I understand that all that's happening, but those people who are running everything and putting out this agenda and bragging about their results, well, surely they didn't 
create COVID-19. <laughs> but turns out, yes, they did do that, too. But it must have been some other random explanation or a uh, failure in the calculations. I mean, yes, they are the best in the world at planning and mathematics and all of the necessary things. They have all their little computer models and their AI and their algorithms. Something must have just gone wrong. The system is too complicated. There are too many places it can break down. And not realizing that that is actually a very powerful argument against communism in the first place, they will still use that to shift blame away from the global communists. But allow me to give you one more part of the argument that perhaps all of this is not a conspiracy theory. And to that, I look to no less than Oxfam International. They had a headline yesterday. Pandemic creates new billionaire every 30 hours. Now a million people could fall into extreme poverty at the same rate in 2022. Okay. So on average, a new billionaire every 30 hours since the pandemic began. Simultaneously, a million people in the world might fall into extreme poverty at the same rate. Now, that's upwards of 5 million people per week falling into extreme poverty to create each and every one of those billionaires. And that process has been going on for two years. The New York Times in August of 2020 was reporting that a couple hundred million people in the world, I think maybe it was 150 to 200 at that point, had already fallen into extreme poverty. That's what the lockdowns did. Who were the lockdowns suggested by? Oh, it's these people. But let's not focus on the bad. Let's focus on the good. Think of how much philanthropy all of these new billionaires can provide by going directly to the World Economic Forum and all of their transnational corporate partners, and they'll all work on the project together. All of these new billions that, of course, sprang from nothing and weren't reallocated from the people of the world into the hands of the most wealthy. Imagine how quickly we will fix everything once we have all that money too. And just to read a bit from their report, billionaires are arriving in Davos to celebrate an incredible surge in their fortunes. The pandemic and now the steep increases in food and energy prices have simply put been a bonanza for them. Meanwhile, decades of progress on extreme poverty are in reverse and millions of people are facing impossible rises in the cost of simply staying alive, said Gabriella Boucher, maybe or Butcher, executive director of Oxfam International. This brief shows that 573 people became new billionaires during the pandemic at the rate of one every 30 hours. We expect this year that 263 million more people will crash into extreme poverty at a rate of a million people every 33 hours. Billionaires wealth has risen by more in the first 24 months of COVID-19 than in 23 years combined. The total wealth of the world's billionaires is now equivalent to 13.9% of global GDP. This is a threefold increase, up from 4.4% in 2000. Billionaires' fortunes have not increased because they are now smarter or working harder. Workers are working harder, for less pay and in worse conditions. 
The super rich have rigged the system with impunity for decades, and they are now reaping the benefits. They have seized a shocking amount of the world's wealth as a result of privatization and monopolies, gutting regulations and workers' rights while stashing their cash in tax havens, all with the complicity of governments. Meanwhile, Millions of others are skipping meals, turning off the heating, falling behind on bills and wondering what they can possibly do next to survive across East Africa. One person is likely dying every minute from hunger. This grotesque inequality is breaking the bonds that hold us together as humanity. It is divisive, corrosive and dangerous. This is inequality that literally kills. And they go on to mention that 40 new pharma billionaires have been created so we can see their agenda. We can watch their agenda be implemented. We can know the entities that are participating in the agenda, the partners of all these globalist organizations, their governmental partners, their corporate partners. We can see the results. We can feel the results in our own lives. We hear about the results from our friends. We know that the world is in a period of crisis and chaos and we can see that the very same people are profiting at extraordinary rates on all of this. And we are told, of course, because they are the best and brightest of us. They are the experts. They have the tools and the technology and the algorithms that are able to help them gain the system. When things are going bad, they still profit. But it doesn't mean they cause the bad things, except for the fact of everything else. And you can actually see that they did cause the bad things. And they told us exactly how they were going to cause the bad things. And now they are bragging about the results. Is it still a conspiracy theory? But somehow, despite all their great success, they still need to get everybody on board. They still need to convince everyone that they are doing the right thing and that we should just let them have more power. They need us to keep believing that it's all working. No matter how bad things get in our own lives. But it turns out they've begun to realize that their project is failing. So let's talk about that for a little while. Here is Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum being interviewed by a very slim headed Englishman who usually reports on the British royal family. So a very, very serious person. This year's event is more important than ever, given the challenges that the, work is facing, the world is facing. Klaus Schwab says it's crucial that leaders meet in person as it helps create trust between them. You see every day how the world is falling apart with the different crises which we have to manage. And... You can exchange in small circles ideas, you can take certain decisions, but it was so important to bring the global community, the global stakeholder community together in person again, because it's only the personal interaction which creates trust or which recreates trust. You can see every day how the world is falling apart. Well, whose perspective is he speaking from? He's talking about how all of these people are going into extreme poverty. He's talking about the chaos and the crises that just keep springing up out of nothing randomly, even though we have all the best experts, the adults are in the room. Somehow things are still going wrong. The world is falling apart. And what we need to do 
is get the global community together in person. Oh, wait, the global stakeholder community. Got that? That's very critical. Every time he says stakeholder, those are the people he's gathered together. The global stakeholders, the people who have skin in the globalist game. That's what he's talking about. The people who execute the agenda and reap the rewards. Those are the stakeholders. You are not a stakeholder. Stakeholders have decision-making power. You have no decision-making power. You don't get a seat at the table. The corporations get a seat at the table. Governments are supposed to work for the benefit of the people, especially governments like the one in America, where those in government are meant to be in government specifically to represent the needs of the people. You have to have everybody together in person to establish trust. You need to be able to actually compromise them on the spot so that they can't just respond to an email and be like, yeah, sure, on it, Klaus. And then you just never do it. This is their opportunity to take anyone who has fallen out of line and, uh, you know, put electrodes on their genitals. It's how we establish trust. I mean, reestablish trust. Now, that is awfully weird. You need to reestablish trust. Hey, Klaus, did you all do something that broke the public's trust or the trust among one another? That seems like kind of an odd admission. Isn't the reality, though, that everything that Davos stands for is on the verge of failure? Give you an example. Number one, the war in Ukraine. All the idea of some sort of common views on, 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 a, on a European way forward. Number two, China. Unilaterally shut down, everybody else is open. Number three, we're failing on our climate, change, uh, climate targets. So what's the purpose? Ukraine's a disaster, China's a disaster, and no one cares about your uh, climate change nonsense. So uh, what's up with that, Klaus? First, Davos never has been as important as it is now, particularly for the reasons you mentioned. We cannot prevent the war in uh, Ukraine. We cannot uh, take away COVID and so on. But we can create coordinated responses to those challenges. And that's what we are doing. And those challenges need the cooperation of business, civil society, and of course, mainly politics. So it's because of these crises that Davos and the World Economic Forum project is so important. Yes, the agendas implemented by all of the most powerful people in the world have been directly responsible for all this chaos. And none of the stuff that they have said was going to happen has actually happened in the way that they described it, in a way that is successful, in a way that actually does benefit anyone besides all of those brand new billionaires. But that's why it's important that they reassert and reaffirm their own power and their own ability to make the decisions for everyone else, for the benefit of everyone else. And it's kind of amazing that Klaus's defense is essentially... uh Turn that frown upside down. And that's the sort of thing you might think if you personally and all of the people you care about are actually reaping great reward from all of these problems. 
And of course, the combination of narcissism and utter incompetence that is present in Klaus Schwab leads him to believe that he and people like him, people much, much better than us, obviously, are the solution. Sure, things are bad, but you have to understand that these bad things that resulted from the implementation of our agenda, these are just speed bumps. Wait until we implement the entire agenda. It's going to get a whole lot worse, but after that, utopia. And the good news is we'll all be profiting in the meantime. So why didn't you invite Russians? Because if dialogue is so important, then wouldn't it have been better to have had those non-sanctioned Russians at the table? Now, that's interesting, and maybe I'm looking too much into this, but the non-sanctioned Russians, why didn't you invite the non-sanctioned Russians? Does anyone believe that Klaus Schwab wouldn't have invited the globalist-friendly Russians to come to this meeting, make it look like Putin's country is not unified, maybe prop up the next Russian leader, the one that they plan to install after they remove Putin from power, create a new global superstar like the comedic actor Volodymyr Zelensky? And then the question is, would Putin have allowed that? Well, all we know from the real world is there are no Russians there. Tons of Ukrainians but no Russians. Also, just an interesting aside, the Chinese delegation yesterday did not participate in the standing ovation for the comedic actor after he gave his dystopian address to all of the communists attending the World Economic Forum. And that's very strange because the CCP has been a decades long partner in this global communist project. So either there's a rift between the World Economic Forum and Volodymyr Zelensky on one side and the CCP on the other, or the Chinese delegation may not have been there representing the CCP. I guess we'll find out. You are right, but at the end, the decision what Russia will do depends on Putin. And you have seen uh, Guterres, uh, Macron, and so on, uh, trying to build a bridge. Um, so the time is not yet ripe, but we are ready and we have announced it as soon as the time is ripe to offer our bridge building um, capabilities again. So what happens in Ukraine is up to Russia. It's up to Putin. The World Economic Forum has no say, apparently. He noted earlier they can't prevent a war in Ukraine. And hey, Klaus, if your globalist organizations like the EU and the UN and NATO and the World Economic Forum and your other little organizations where you exert global influence on sovereign nations, if they can't prevent the war in Ukraine, then what are they there for? Why do we have a UN if compromise without war is unattainable? Each and every one of these international bodies, these globalist organizations has failed at their only critical task. And these people, the communists they are, admit that it's failed, but say that the reason it's failed is because they haven't yet been given enough power. They don't have everybody quite on the same page yet. What they need to do is establish more trust. And then in the future, their plans are going to work just fine. 
the bridge building capabilities will be important. Yes. But don't you need a moment of introspection to ask, how did it go so wrong? How did, the, the, you know, Davos, and when I say Davos, I don't mean you personally, I mean the community, spent decades bringing, trying to bring Russia into the global community and be part of the global community, only for President Putin to literally go the opposite direction and start a war. Wait, so Putin's not on board with the globalist agenda? Am I getting that correct? I'm just checking for all those people who still think that this is all a ruse and that Putin is still very much a part of the World Economic Forum project. Yes, and we regret it. But if you look at global affairs, some certain developments go into the right direction. And even the forum and even Davos cannot prevent that certain issues are not developing as we would like have them to do. In that sense, it's going to be more difficult because we're also entering economic great difficulties, truly awful times. We've got inflation, the like of which we've not seen for 40 years. Wait, that same problem is happening all over the world? Yes, we have, uh, apart from all the political conflicts, we have a global economy which is out of balance. Now, I'm not an economist, but it seems theoretically difficult, and maybe it's my ignorance, for a free market to be fundamentally out of balance like this. Basically, supply and demand are supposed to even themselves out based on market forces. You would have to bring in outside controls and regulations and restrictions into that market to be able to set it out of balance so dramatically. But like I said, I'm not an economist. And what I want to highlight particularly here is the consequences. Um, We may have little influence on how the central banks decide about the future policies, but we know that if we don't change course, we will have hundreds of millions of people falling back into poverty We have tens of millions probably dying, possibly, of hunger. So this is a misery, and we have to address it. So to bring it at the forefront of our uh, topics here, of our program, and to generate action, that's my intention. So there's no point in talking about how we got here. The point is talking about what has happened And what could happen that'll be even worse. And when you see how bad things could get, that will justify all of the power we need to take from you now in order to make sure that those things don't happen. And of course, we have absolutely no control over the central banks and their policy. Anything to do with monetary policy, man, the World Economic Forum just has absolutely nothing to do with that. That is just not our bag, baby. There's never been a more important time and a more more serious time for these talks to be taking place. Yes, um, that's also um, reflected in the mood. I mean, it's the most consequential meeting which we ever had in the last 20, uh, 50 years, I would say. And um, the mood will be much more serious, much more concerned uh, compared to the previous years, because we are at the turning point of history. We are at a turning point of history, the most important meeting we've had in 50 years, 50 years. 
That's Klaus Schwab talking about five decades pursuing this same narrative that we're told Joe Biden just came up with during the campaign and it's called Build Back Better. And the mood is going to be more serious. They understand how critical this situation is. They're very concerned that they may not be able to meet this point in history. The whole globalist project might fall down if they don't get what they need, if they don't see all these crises resolved in the way that their agenda suggested they would be. And that is a pretty obvious problem for people who plan out devastating crises in order to seize more power. At some point, they might realize that the devastating crisis they've created isn't going exactly as planned. But since their agenda, their plans are always so complicated and so interconnected and interdependent, they really don't leave any room the magnitude of the errors they've created. The world is watching these elitist technocratic morons and beginning to see all of this for exactly what it is. But Klaus Schwab isn't the only global communist admitting defeat on some level. Zero Hedge had a great write-up of a recent conference that Henry Kissinger himself participated in. The headline in Zero Hedge is Blue Checks Furious After Henry Kissinger Says Ukraine Should Cede Territory for Peace with Russia. Veteran U.S. statesman Henry Kissinger has urged the West to stop trying to inflict a crushing defeat on Russian forces in Ukraine, warning that it would have disastrous consequences for the long-term stability of Europe. I hope the Ukrainians will match the heroism they have shown with wisdom. Kissinger warned an audience at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, adding with his famous sense of realpolitik that the proper role for the country is to be a neutral buffer state rather than the frontier of Europe. Well, good luck at keeping it a neutral buffer state under globalist control, Henry. He said negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be easily overcome. Ideally, the dividing line should be a return to the status quo ante. Pursuing the war beyond that point would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself. Except returning to the status quo ante is not an option for them. And you can see what this negotiation is, right? We know what Vladimir Putin wanted. Demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. Crimea remains Russian, the DPR and LPR, the independent republics of the Donbass would be independent. Ukraine would not join the EU or NATO. Now, Crimea was already under Russian control and Ukraine was never in the EU or NATO. So those two parts actually do represent the status quo ante at least as of the beginning of the special military operation, or as CNN calls it, all-out war. The demilitarization and denazification, now that would be new, except that Putin has largely already completed that part of the mission, and those Nazis ain't coming back. Now, as far as demilitarization goes, the U.S. and our allies 
keep trying to prop up a Ukrainian military, which is really foreign mercenaries and Nazi battalions. So that could simply be stopped and the demilitarization thing would be accomplished. And then the other part is leaving the DPR and LPR independent. Now, that part is the only questionable variable out of Putin's demands that could potentially return to the status quo ante. But we know it won't because their independence was one of the primary reasons for all of this. They were enduring an eight year long ethnic civil war waged by the comedic actors government and his neo-Nazi accomplices. So that part definitely will not return to the status quo ante. The only things that could return to the status quo ante are the things that Putin wanted to remain the way they were. And when you take all that into account, what he's really suggesting is that Ukraine just goes ahead and surrenders soon. And of course, that sparked the blue and on blue checkmark Twitter meltdown. And one of the posts that Zero Hedge included was from the uh, woke gossip columnist Yashar Ali, who is just friends with Taylor Lorenz and all of the woke blue check marks. He's like one of the leaders of Blue Anon on Twitter. He wrote Henry Kissinger should give himself to the morgue. So I guess he's wishing death on Henry Kissinger. And that apparently now is OK. Actually, never mind. It was always OK. He's blue and on. He can say whatever he wants. And hopefully he'll eventually get to decide what other people say, too. But all of that is essentially an admission from one of the most prominent globalists that the project is failing. The Ukraine project for them has failed and was always going to fail. And I talked before about how they would not use state violence against the people partly because they don't have the power to do so and partly because they don't have the will to do so because the consequences of doing that would themselves ruin the plan. And the same principle applies to Ukraine and Russia. If they could actually garner the international forces and supplies, the military, the soldiers, the equipment, all of it, waging an all out war with Russia in Ukraine would still not result in the success of those parts of their agenda. And so what have the globalists achieved in Ukraine? Yeah, they were able to launder some money. They might have taken out some Russian military assets. Maybe they spawned new Russophobia in the world. That's certainly true. But beyond that, this has been a resounding failure. They did not isolate Russia. They did not break Russia economically. The ruble is in better position now than it was before the special military operation started. So yet another piece of the communist plot has failed. And now finally, let's see what King Communist himself, George Soros, has to say about all this. And as always, when we talk about George Soros, and we haven't for a while, it's important to remember that George Soros himself is and was a Nazi. And I know he can't be a Nazi. He's Jewish, just like the comedic actor. 
except this is from 60 Minutes. To understand the complexities and contradictions in his personality, you have to go back to the very beginning, to Budapest, where George Soros was born 68 years ago to parents who were wealthy, well-educated, and Jewish. When the Nazis occupied Budapest in 1944, George Soros's father was a successful lawyer. He lived on an island in the Danube and liked to commute to work in a rowboat. But knowing there were problems ahead for the Jews, he decided to split his family up. He bought them forged papers, and he bribed a government official to take 14-year-old George Soros in and swear that he was his Christian godson. But survival carried a heavy price tag. While hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being shipped off to the death camps, George Soros accompanied his phony godfather on his appointed rounds, confiscating property from the Jews. These are pictures from 1944 of what happened to George Soros's friends and neighbors. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. In what way? That one should think ahead, one should understand and, and anticipate events. Uh, and uh, one, one is threatened. It was a tremendous threat of evil. I mean, it was a, a very personal experience of evil. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't, you don't see the connection. Uh, but it, was, it created no, no problem at all. No feeling of guilt? No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish. Uh, and here I am watching these people go, I could just as easily be there, I should be there, none of that. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there, because uh, that was... Uh, uh, well, actually, funny way, it's just like in markets that if I weren't there, of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would would, would, would be taking it away anyhow. In other words, the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator, the property was being taken away. So helping to take away, to confiscate his neighbor's property and load them onto trains... That's where his character was formed. He feels no guilt about it whatsoever. That's George Soros, 60 Minutes, 1998. That is who George Soros is. This is from today in, of course, Project Syndicate. George Soros' own personal mouthpiece. Since the last Davos meeting, the course of history has changed dramatically. Russia invaded Ukraine. This has shaken Europe to its core. 
The European Union was established to prevent such a thing from happening. Oh, so the European Union failed? That's so odd. Even when the fighting stops, as it eventually must, the situation will never revert to the status quo ante. Indeed, the Russian invasion may turn out to be the beginning of World War III, and our civilization may not survive it. And Soros did so well with World War II, why would he even be against it? The invasion of Ukraine did not come out of the blue. The world has been increasingly engaged over the past half decade or longer in a struggle between two diametrically opposed systems of governance, open society and closed society. Let me define the differences as simply as I can. And before we go ahead and allow him to do that, let's also notice that the last half decade or so describes the time between 2014 and now when George Soros and Barack Obama and Victoria Newland and all of that side of the global communist project actually overthrew the government in Ukraine and then began waging the ethnic civil war in the Donbass. Maybe that's what he's referring to. In an open society, the role of the state is to protect the freedom of the individual. In a closed society, the role of the individual is to serve the rulers of the state. Other issues that concern all humanity, fighting pandemics and climate change, avoiding nuclear war, maintaining global institutions have had to take a back seat to this systemic struggle. That's why I say civilization may not survive. Now, George Soros may have given the correct definition for an open society, but the instances in the real world that he calls open societies never are. He's literally responsible for taking away the people's ability to cast a fair and legal vote. He overthrows governments through color revolutions. But all of this is justified because he says that the governments he installs in these countries are actually looking out for the needs of the individual by looking out for them all in the aggregate, according to, you know, the experts and their modeling and ultimately the overall agenda. Also, open societies don't need the government to look out for citizens Open societies need citizens to look out for themselves and for the government to get out of the way wherever possible. That is a free and open society. I became engaged in what I call political philanthropy in the 1980s, a time when a large part of the world languished under communist rule. I wanted to help people who were outraged and fought against oppression. I established one foundation after another in rapid succession. In what was then the Soviet Empire, the effort turned out to be more successful than I expected. Those were exciting days. They also coincided with a period of personal financial success that allowed me to increase my annual giving from $3 million in 1984 to more than $300 million three years later. Yeah, crashing entire countries' currencies does have a benefit to George Soros. Not to all the people whose currencies became worthless. But the thing is, all of that devastation actually allowed the perfect moral actor, George Soros, to do more political philanthropy. Soros is like a phoenix rising from the ashes. 
of the fire he set and then saying, hey, don't worry, guys, I got this. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001, the tide began to turn against open societies. Repressive regimes are now ascendant and open societies are under siege. Today, China and Russia represent the greatest threats to open societies. I have pondered long and hard why this shift took place. Part of the answer is to be found in the rapid development of digital technology, especially artificial intelligence. Man, that's weird. Their own tools are turning against them. The technology is just like, man, these Nazis are nuts. I'm out of here. Kind of like how uh, George Soros's lower eyelids tried to escape his blackened icy stare. In theory, AI ought to be politically neutral. It can be used for good or bad. In practice, the effect is asymmetric. AI is particularly good at producing instruments of control that help repressive regimes and endanger open societies. COVID-19 also helped legitimize such instruments of control because they really are useful in dealing with the pandemic. Ah, yeah, instruments of control. The rapid development of AI has gone hand in hand with the rise of big tech and social media platforms. In short order, these conglomerates have come to dominate the global economy, their reach extending around the world. These developments have had far-reaching consequences. They have sharpened the conflict between China and the United States. China has turned its tech platforms into national champions. The U.S. has been more hesitant because it worried about the effect of these technologies on individual freedom. These different attitudes shed new light on the conflict between the two different systems of governance. President Xi Jinping's China, which collects personal data to surveil and control its citizens more aggressively than any other country in history, ought to benefit from these developments. But as I shall explain, that is not the case. Now, why in the world would that be? I'm sure he's going to give us an answer. Let me first turn to recent developments, in particular, the meeting between Xi and Russian President Vladimir Putin on February 4th at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics. They issued a long statement announcing that the cooperation between them has no limits. Putin informed Xi of a special military operation in Ukraine, but it is unclear whether he told Xi that he had a full scale invasion in mind. U.S. and British military experts certainly told their Chinese counterparts what was in store. She approved, but asked Putin to wait until the conclusion of the Winter Games. For his part, she resolved to hold the Olympics despite the appearance of the highly contagious Omicron variant that was just beginning to spread in China. The organizers went to great lengths to create an airtight bubble for the competitors, and the Olympics concluded without a hitch. And I imagine that the athletes who were forcibly quarantined might have something different to say about that. But Omicron established itself in the community, first in Shanghai, China's largest city and commercial hub. Now it is spreading to the rest of the country. Yet she persists to this day with his zero COVID policy, which has inflicted great hardships on Shanghai's population by forcing residents into makeshift quarantine centers instead of allowing them to self-quarantine at home. Shanghai's inhabitants have been driven to the verge of open rebellion. And it should strike everyone as odd that someone who Soros formerly looked at as a partner, that's Xi Jinping, is implementing the policies that were encouraged 
by other Soros partners all around the world and implemented by global communists everywhere, including in many places in the United States. Now the policy's no good and now she's no good because even though they were all aligned before, they're not now. Many people are puzzled by this seemingly irrational approach to the pandemic, but I can give you the explanation. She harbors a guilty secret. He never told the Chinese people that they had been inoculated with a vaccine that was designed for the original Wuhan variant of the disease, but which offers little protection against new variants. So the vaccine he gave out failed in the same way that the rest of the world's vaccines failed, but she never told the Chinese people. So the Omicron affliction is his. He's also saying that this is a seemingly irrational approach to the pandemic. But again, other countries aligned with the global communist agenda tried the same approach, including parts of Australia and all of New Zealand. She was certainly not the first person to pursue a zero COVID policy. And you'll remember that even here, people were talking about totally eradicating the virus. If everybody just locked down for two weeks, the whole thing would be gone. It would be over theoretically and theoretically is the only level on which we discuss things. She cannot afford to come clean about this because he is at a very delicate moment in his career. His second term in office expires this fall, and he wants to be appointed to an unprecedented third term and eventually become ruler for life. He has carefully choreographed a process that would allow him to fulfill his life's ambition, and everything must be subordinated to this goal. And of course, this is exactly how they talk about Vladimir Putin. It's exactly how they talk about Viktor Orban, and it's exactly how they talk about Donald Trump. In the meantime, Putin's, quote, special military operation, end quote, has not unfolded according to plan. He expected his army to be welcomed as liberators by the Russian speaking population of Ukraine. His soldiers carried dress uniforms for a victory parade. Instead, Ukraine put up an unexpectedly strong resistance and inflicted severe damage on the invading Russian army, which was badly equipped, badly led and soon became demoralized. The U.S. and the EU rallied to Ukraine's support and supplied it with armaments. With their help, Ukraine was able to defeat the much larger Russian army in the battle for Kiev. Except that battle never happened. And Russia never tried to take Kiev. This is myth-making. This is a reinterpretation of recent history. It is a flat-out lie. And yet, because he declares it assertively, with confidence... It is expected that the reader will be like, oh, yeah, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that Ukraine defeated Russia in the battle for Kiev. Putin could not afford to accept defeat and changed his plans accordingly. He put General Vladimir Shamanov, well known for his cruelty in the siege of Grozny and later for the savagery of the campaign he conducted in Syria in charge and ordered him to produce some success by May 9th when Victory Day was to be celebrated. Now, again, Putin not being able to afford accepting defeat. What metric is that being based on? That his people would not accept it? His people have an 80% approval rating of Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a rock star in Russia right now. He also is not defeated. 
So accepting defeat while winning would be insane. And the other globalists are recognizing this. The Western media is recognizing this. The narrative has shifted now to what is it okay for Ukraine to give up in order for this all to stop? And immediately you again see them in a narrative battle. They want to win the story. The battle on the ground is unwinnable for the global communists, but they still believe they can win the narrative. But Putin had very little to celebrate. Shamanov concentrated his efforts on the port city of Mariupol, which used to have 400,000 inhabitants. He reduced it to rubble as he had done to Grozny. But the Ukrainian defenders held out for a long time, except they all surrendered last week. The hasty withdrawal from Kiev revealed the atrocities that Putin's army had committed on the civilian population in the city's northern suburbs. The war crimes are well documented and the images of civilians murdered by Russian troops in towns like Bucha have stirred widespread international outrage, though not in Russia, where the population has been kept in the dark about Putin's war. Oh, they're not privy to all of the Western propaganda. Shameful. And of course, each and every narrative that that paragraph and his entire premise is based on is provably false. But once again, he is relying on his readers being child-brained communists themselves who are absolutely committed to the central narrative. And therefore, they know that everything he's saying is already true. They have already accepted the truth of each and every part of that narrative unquestioningly, the way they accept each and every other slogan. The invasion of Ukraine has now entered a new, more challenging phase for the country's defenders. The Ukrainian army must fight on open terrain where the numerical superiority of Russian forces is more difficult to overcome. And that's strange because not five paragraphs ago, he said Ukraine put up an unexpectedly strong resistance and inflicted severe damage on the invading Russian army, which was badly equipped, badly led, and soon became demoralized. So the demoralized army with bad equipment and bad leadership is still going to win in open terrain because of the numbers game. And the truth of that statement also has to exist in the world that we are told war is waged with technology and information now. And seeing as how the Russian military is ill-equipped and poorly led, shouldn't they be getting dominated with the technology and information despite outnumbering the Ukrainian forces? But I'm probably, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> this, uh, this crazy old Nazis got it right. The Ukrainians are doing their best counterattacking even at times boldly penetrating Russian territory. Such tactics have had the added benefit of bringing home to the Russian population what is really going on. The U.S. has also done its best to reduce the financial gap between Russia and Ukraine, most recently by allocating an unprecedented $40 billion in military and financial aid to Ukraine's government. I can't predict the outcome, but Ukraine certainly has a fighting chance. Oh yeah, then why is... Henry Kissinger telling them to surrender. Recently, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi and other European leaders went even further. 
They want to use the Russian invasion of Ukraine to promote greater European integration so that what Putin is doing can never happen again. They always want to make it so nothing bad could ever happen again. It is so cute. Former Italian prime minister Enrico Letta, leader of the Partito Democratico, proposed a plan for a partly federated Europe. The federal portion would cover foreign affairs, asylum, energy, defense, and social and health policies. Many people, including me, insist that both food and climate security should be added to the list. And while we're at it, let's get the rest of the Great Reset added to the list, too. I mean, we're halfway there. At Europe's federal core, no member state would have veto power. In other policy domains, member states could join, quote, coalitions of the willing or simply retain their veto power. So, yeah, let's go ahead and centralize government a little further. French President Emmanuel Macron, in a significant broadening of his pro-European approach, has advocated the importance of geographic expansion and the need for the EU to prepare for it. Not only Ukraine, but also Moldova, Georgia, and the Western Balkans should qualify for EU membership. It will take time to work out the details, but Europe seems to be moving in the right direction. It has responded to the invasion of Ukraine with greater speed, unity, and vigor than ever before in its history. After a hesitant start, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has also found a strong pro-European voice. See, they weren't doing the right things, but now they are. But Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels remains excessive, owing largely to the mercantilist policies pursued by former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. She had made special deals with Russia for the supply of gas and made China Germany's largest trading partner. Germany became the best performing economy in Europe, but now there is a heavy price to pay. Germany's economy needs to be reoriented, and that will take a long time. Oh, Germany needs a great reset, even though the great reset had already started. Uh, what a shame. I guess that's just more success and more progress they've made. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was elected because he promised continuity with Merkel's policies and style of government. But events forced him to abandon continuity, which did not come easy because he had to break with some hallowed traditions of his own social democratic party. When it comes to maintaining European unity, however, Schultz always seems to do the right thing in the end. He suspended the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, committed 100 billion euros to defense and provided arms to Ukraine, breaking with a longstanding taboo. And Western democracies more generally responded with similar resolve to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that's actually funny. I was reading this morning that. 165 out of the world's 195 countries did not go along with Russian sanctions, though we are told Russia is isolated from the rest of the world. What do the two dictators, Putin and Xi, now tied together in an alliance, have to show for themselves? They have a lot in common. They rule by intimidation. And as a consequence, they make mind boggling mistakes. You mean like pursuing a decades long agenda of creating one world global governance, a system of global communism and inciting global crises so that your agenda can be successfully implemented because the people of the world continue rejecting it through 
normal processes. And then you execute all of that so poorly that the entire world realizes those kinds of mistakes. Putin expected to be welcomed in Ukraine as a liberator. Likewise, she is sticking to a zero COVID policy that can't possibly be sustained. Putin seems to have recognized that he made a terrible mistake when he invaded Ukraine and is now preparing the ground for negotiating a ceasefire. But a ceasefire is unattainable because he cannot be trusted. Putin would have to start peace negotiations, which he will never do because it would be equivalent to resigning. I mean, that is just bizarre world nonsense. None of that connects to reality anywhere. The situation is confusing. Oh, perhaps that's why you can't explain it in any truthful terms. A military expert who had been opposed to the invasion was allowed to go on Russian television to inform the public how bad the situation is. Later, he swore allegiance to Putin. Interestingly, she continues to support Putin, but no longer without limits. This begins to explain why she is bound to fail. Giving Putin permission to launch an unsuccessful attack against Ukraine didn't serve China's best interests. Although China ought to be the senior partner in the alliance with Russia, Xi's lack of assertiveness allowed Putin to usurp that position. But Xi's worst mistake was to double down on his zero COVID policy. So yes, those two countries have formed monetary and trade alliances, but all of that is just a smokescreen for how they're always trying to one-up each other in a grand power struggle. The continuing lockdowns have had disastrous consequences. Oh, that's strange. I heard that lockdowns were very safe and very effective. The only way to prevent COVID, in fact. Pushing the Chinese economy into a free fall since March. In April, the Nationwide Highway Logistics Index, which measures road haulage across China, dropped to 70% of its level one year ago. For Shanghai alone, the Highway Logistics Index has dropped to 17% of its year earlier level. With over 80% of total freight volume carried by trucks in China, these numbers point to a near collapse of domestic commercial shipping. Moreover, the Kaishin Composite PMI Index, which uses data collected from some 400 companies to track private sector business trends in China, including sales, new orders, employment, inventories, and prices, fell to 37.2 from 43.9 in March. When the PMI's value is below 50, the economy is shrinking. China's steeply declining economic activity is bound to have global consequences, but at least thus far, preparations for this have been scant. These negative results will continue to gather momentum until she reverses course, which he will never do because he can't admit a mistake. Coming on top of the real estate crisis, the damage will be so great that it will affect the global economy. With the disruption of supply chains, global inflation is liable to turn into global depression. Wait, there's a coming real estate crisis? And isn't it also amazing that we have now heard George Soros explain to us that for his own reasons, Vladimir Putin cannot change course. And for his own reasons, Xi Jinping cannot change course, even though both of them surely know what the best course is. They just can't do it. Because their egos are on the line. Their grasp on power is on the line. And it's a good time to remember once again that this is exactly how they always described Donald Trump when he had their commie asses in a bind. They're not going to change. They have given their final answer. 
All that is remaining is for the global communists to respond in whatever ways they will and, and for their responses to then be countered. And because the global communists have no power to leverage in the negotiation, there's no point in even pretending that these leaders will change course. So it's better to reframe what they're doing as obstinance and stubbornness and uh, ego driven mistakes. For the West, the dilemma in dealing with Russia is that the weaker Putin gets, the more unpredictable he becomes. The member states of the EU feel the pressure. They realize that Putin may not wait until they develop alternative sources of energy before turning off the gas taps himself while it really hurts, as he has done to Bulgaria, Poland and Finland. And Finland, at least, chose that for themselves. The Repower EU program presented last week reflects these fears. Schultz is particularly anxious because of the special deals Merkel made with Russia. Draghi is more courageous, although Italy's gas dependency is almost as high as Germany's. Europe's cohesion will face a severe test, but if it continues to act together, it could strengthen both Europe's energy security and leadership on climate change. Oh, only positive outcomes. And of course, when the gas cuts off and these countries have no energy, the global communists will tell them how what's happening is progress because they are getting closer to meeting their climate goals. So once again, you can see that the agenda caused the crisis. Who benefits them? How do they review the problem as a speed bump on the road to progress? So let's get back to the agenda. What about China? She has many enemies. Nobody dares to attack him directly because he controls all the instruments of surveillance and repression. So he's he's got it all. But it, it is well known that within the Communist Party, dissension has become so sharp that it has found expression in articles that ordinary people can read. Uh, Yeah, George, you guys kind of control the global state media. So, of course, articles that criticize your enemies are widely available. Great point. Oh, they're evading Chinese censorship. Got it. Contrary to expectations, she may not get his coveted third term because of the mistakes he has made. But even if he does, the Politburo may not give him a free hand to select the members of the next Politburo. That would greatly reduce his power and influence and make it less likely that he will become ruler for life. So contrary to expectations, she could be ousted. And then things would improve in China from the global communist perspective. Isn't that strange since she runs the Chinese Communist Party and she is now the enemy? Gosh, all the variables. What could they mean? It's worth noting that George Soros sounds like he is committed to a regime change policy in China. In addition to the regime change policy already expressed regarding Russia. Meanwhile, as the war in Ukraine rages on, the fight against climate change has had to take second place. That's crazy. We're all going to be dead in eight years unless the climate change agenda runs exactly on schedule. That's what AOC told me. Nothing can possibly make climate change play second fiddle. 
Nothing matters if we're all dead from climate change. Did these people forget everything they've been saying for decades or did it just become inconvenient? Yet the experts tell us that we have already fallen far behind and climate change is on the verge of becoming irreversible. That could be the end of our civilization. Man, in that first paragraph, he said that World War III would be the end of our civilization. But that's also strange because he's one of the people causing World War III. Man, it's like the things these nutty old Nazis say don't make any sense. I find this prospect particularly frightening. Most of us accept the idea that we must eventually die, but we take it for granted that our civilization will survive. I love that he is saying that most of us accept the idea that we must eventually die. But like, not everybody. Who wouldn't accept something like that? Oh, it's George Soros and all, all his friends. Therefore, we must mobilize all our resources to bring the war to an early end. The best and perhaps only way to preserve our civilization is to defeat Putin. That's the bottom line. The only way to save our civilization is to defeat Putin. Now, are we all going to die from World War III or climate change? No. Our civilization is going to continue on just fine. In fact, it will probably thrive even more. If Vladimir Putin is successful in kicking the global communists and their biolabs and their Nazis and their corruption out of Ukraine. But it's good to know how significant the resistance to the global communist project actually is. This is their most critical time. It's a cause for seriousness and concern. They must all come together to get on the same page to create trust so that they can build the future that they've planned all along. Because if anything else goes wrong, then the whole project is over. And you just heard Klaus Schwab, Henry Kissinger, and George Soros themselves tell you exactly that. But don't be fooled. There is absolutely no coordination between their messages. To suggest otherwise, now that would be a conspiracy theory. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range.
It's hell!